Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Eat Well Podcast. This is Dylan here, and you're joining me here on a Monday night, and I'm carrying on with my catching up with my friends podcast series and talking about our hunting seasons and and picking a topic that we may that we think is interesting to hopefully the the Eat Wild listeners. So so this week I'm joined by by my friend Spencer Greening, La Good. Uh, Spencer has joined us in the past and talked about. Um, a couple of podcasts where we talked about uh, in, talked about the the seasons of eating wild from an indigenous perspective, which was a ton of fun. We also talked about a little bit more of a complex topic around uh, in, indigenous stewardship systems, indigenous law, and how it affects uh, and how it can affect or support wildlife management in, in BC. Um, that was a great topic, and we had a lot of fun. So before I say hello to Spencer, I'm just going to just Spencer comes at, he's a, he's a, as an academic and he, he brings with him a ton of knowledge he's a he's a he's a knowledge keeper and a great storyteller he, he's uh spencer's doing his phd at sfu um which is emphasizing the importance of indigenous knowledge and stewardship of, of the land in the context of colonial management practices and law specifically his his um, thesis explores how the connections amongst indigenous uh, uh pedagogy language and sharing the the place-based knowledge are linked to heritage preservation, identity, and a more sustainable environmental management. Spencer is analyzing uh, one of the cultural keystone places in his home territory in the heart of the Great Bear Rainforest, where his elders were born and raised in a life fluid in the Gitgat culture, language, and ecological relationships. By working in their ancestral knowledge systems, he is able to highlight local Indigenous knowledge its vital role in academic scholarship, Canadian law and policy, and the promotion of environmental awareness. His research is also unique as it's led um, by his community and rooted in Indigenous research methodologies and frameworks. This ensures its contribution to cultural continuity, self-determination, Indigenous research, and decolonization. That's a mouthful, but welcome, Spencer, to the podcast. How you doing? I'm doing great. That's uh, good to be here. That's uh, great, man. I, I, you know, I, I, I was writing down an introduction for you, and I was like, you know what? Like, I somebody way smarter than me wrote up a really elaborate introduction from you, so I should re- read that one because it really does capture the, the the work you've been doing, the importance of the work you're doing, and the and the spectrum of it. Which I, I would have just said, like, spe- you know, we've we've had great storytelling and talked about cool stuff, and, and this probably doesn't do the doesn't do your, your, both your academic and your, and your passion for this work, uh, um, justice. So, so I, I hope I didn't stumble through that too bad, but. No, uh, um, I think it's funny because guess who wrote that one? <laughs> Someone way smarter than me. Who's also talking to me probably. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I didn't learn until I became a PhD student was that everyone writes their own bios and it's such like a, a shameful, cringy, I, I, it's just a weird thing um, to to write all your brag worthy points and then throw that into the public sphere and uh, yeah, <laughs> I just thought it. <laughs> it's a difficult thing to do, and I I coach a lot of people in uh, in doing interviews and like and being better at doing interviews, and the one of the hardest things to do is to like say things about yourself that you've accomplished, right? Because most people are pretty modest. So it's great. You should always go ask somebody else, like, "Hey, tell me, tell me what your perspective of what I do best is," and ha- and then write down what they say, and then then it becomes much easier to say it. So, 
So, so yeah, consult with your with your academic advisors and friends in the community, and it'll make it easier to write next time. Totally, yeah. So, so okay, so so the um, we're gonna talk about a couple. Well, how how are you holding up, man? How's the uh, how's the pandemic treating you? I'm good. I surprisingly good. I think. So we speculated about this like the first time I was on the podcast that everyone knew. I mean, it's not like we were smart for speculating this, but we knew that it was going to slow everything down. And I realize how important that was for my life. Uh, being in the role I was, I was doing a lot of research, uh, traveling for uh, conferences and meetings. And there was like a good stint there. Prior to the PhD, I was in politics and I would keep note about how many times I would stay home. And I think for four years, the longest I s slept in my own bed was like nine or 10 days consecutively. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a weird thing. And and I think anyone who um, has a job where they're, they're involved in meetings and and travel and that sort of stuff experiences the same thing and so much of the quote unquote i'm doing the finger quotes here professional yeah. world forces you to live that way based on schedules and uh your life revolves around this schedule and covid just blew that up and so one of the nice thing uh, amongst all the scary and uh, the scary things the hardships that we're facing is that it forces us to be in tune with a natural rhythm. And I'm, I'm going to maybe segue here into what we're going to talk about yeah. at some point, is that it's nice that this happened throughout intense, seasonally intense times of harvest for us. Yeah, um, That was like a blessing for me. Imagine if this happened right, like at this time, if the pandemic really started i mean the first case started around this time last year but if lockdown started it would be brutal the dark winter uh, all of that from from in spencer's own world um i live in the north and uh, uh harvesting was ramping up and i think most people who are engaged in the outdoors still had opportunity to travel certain ways to get outside and so uh, the blessing for me was slowing down, forced me to pay attention to how I'm not responding to a schedule anymore, but responding to the days and responding to the season, and uh, and, and and just really walking the path that uh, that our natural sort of time, our natural schedule of the earth seasons and all these things tells us to do that. So that's a long winded way of me saying I'm doing good. And, um, and uh, I've still been able to harvest throughout these seasons and slow down and live with those seasons as best as possible. Totally, man. I, 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 I've been saying this quite a lot right now as we've been wrapping up, you know, I'm coming to the close of my hunting season, but how thankful I have been that, you know, the, the things that I love doing, hunting and fishing, the things that ground me, in my way of life, that ground me in my mental health, that that keep me connected to my community, of all things I've been able to do safely despite the pandemic, and I, I just have such a you know I I 
I'm hanging like and now and I'm coming into the winter and I'm like, oh, I'm concerned. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, okay, short days, like no more hunting trips the next weekend. Like I'm, I'm worried about where things are going and you know how I will cope. And, 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 and I'm like, well, man, like I'm lucky. Like so many people have, don't have hunting and fit, you know, fishing, like they play music or they, you know, go to poetry readings or whatever they do to connect with their community and express themselves and maintain their mental health. Like they have not been able to do that for some time now or have to do it in different ways. And I, I, you know, I, a lot of people, man, they must, you know, I are suffering for sure. And, um, kind of looking ahead to, you know, making sure I got a, I got a plan going forward to stay well. And it's kind of why I reached out to you and, and others to do these catch up calls. It's just kind of, you know, it's part of staying connected to your community and friends and, and, I've got something to look forward to on a Monday night. I get to hang out with, with, with you and, and, uh, hang out. So that, that's sort of the idea. So anyways, I, okay, Spencer. So I, I'm excited to get into our topic here. So maybe we should jump to that right away. And, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the process for, well, can you, I want to talk about ceremony or ritual after you take an animal's life. And, and I thought it'd be kind of fun because I, 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 I value you, you, your perspective as a hunter. I, I, I value your perspective as a knowledge keeper uh, within your within your community as an indigenous person, and I feel like you could maybe add some insight to that to that from that from that perspective. Um, and I also feel like I can contribute a little bit to this conversation as someone who has probably hunted with more new hunters than most people, and kind of watch people go through that process. So. Um, and, and also just bringing my own upbringing and, 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 and where I was brought to sort of that moment of, 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 of that very profound moment after you kill an animal and what's next. So, um, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask you, like, Spencer, tell, what's it like for you as a hunter? Like, going back to your bear this, this spring, um, uh-huh. walk me through the process that, that you, you, what happens for you after you pull the trigger? So I think the thing with in, an indigenous worldview is that these things come into place long before you pull the trigger. And maybe for some hunters, this is going to resonate. Um, I think hunters mentally prepare in many ways. Um, by hunters, I'm using that term as like general hunter that we see today in British Columbia or Canada or North America or whatever. They have their whole sort of ritual that they do prior to hunting season. Maybe it's like they keep track of their exercise. They have their gear a certain way, but very rarely in that culture, do you come across like an entire community having ceremonial ceremony and ritual around this act of killing something. And so I think for indigenous people uh, that, that process of taking life starts from a community place long before the actual pulling of the trigger. Okay. Which is, maybe you can speak to this from being a non-Indigenous, like British Columbian resident hunter, um, if I'm off the mark and generalizing too much about that world. But uh, I think... Yeah, th- th- there's this key difference when it comes to 
uh, how I was taught about death as opposed to maybe you were. There's probably lots of similarities too, mm-hmm. but let me back up. Yeah, go for uh, it. So traditionally, there was a lot of ritual around it. And the act of killing was more like a dance with the spirit of the other animal. And it's like this dance between the physical realm and the spiritual realm where you're kind of guiding them into another place. And it's they have the agency to choose whether they want to do that dance with you. That dance being you're going to take them and put them into another, into the spirit world as opposed to the physical world. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, the animal has that agency. And so it's not just you deciding, it's also the animal deciding as well. So there's all these complexities around um, who's actually bringing that being into death on this world and into another world. Um, I'm going really deep, really quick into this. Well, no, this is great. And this is funny because I had this like very simplistic thought that I had. It's like I was thinking about like the next seven minutes after you pull the trigger, what's what the perspective is. And this is great because like we're just going right. We're we're just diving way deeper and let's go. We're we're going through time here (laughs) ahead. Yeah, I I love this. I like where we're going. I, I heard you say once in another podcast or maybe it was in a conversation that you have the whole concept of like passing on an animal is one that you have or or like putting a fish back in the ocean after you catch it is a difficult process for you or like or, or just doesn't doesn't square with your thinking um yeah. as a fisher as a fisher or a hunter can you can you explain that to me I, I think that's probably part of this dance that you're having with the species with the with the animal both yeah um yeah, that's exactly it. Is that I was taught um, by my elders and and uh, what you would hear often in community is that um, animals have agency and and so they choose to give themselves to you. And it's your job as a human. Uh, there's there's this interesting balance of knowing when to turn that off. And to and to keep harvesting as you need to harvest, and um, and so as a kid, I remember my first encounter with it was like ice fishing at I don't know three four years old, mm-hmm. and there was an elder there, not related to me, but um, like was really being strict about this, that um, um, we were all fishing. And uh, made this very clear that you weren't to catch and release. And this wasn't about fun. This is about honoring this this long-time relationship that the fish give themselves to us in a way that we are of sound mind and body to give back to their world in a certain way. And there's different ways we do that as humans. And that's a whole nother conversation. Sometimes it's through habitat management. Sometimes it's like cognitive habitat management. Um, traditionally, sometimes it's, um, just, uh, uh, songs or, or, or rituals that actually give to them. Um, uh, some might say metaphorically, but others would say, 
physically as as you fish or as you prepare to fish offering uh food medicines to them these sorts of things that that uh give them life in a spiritual energetic way and so like that was at the forefront of when it came of my mind when it came to killing things from like three or four years old and that never left my mind it was just always present and so uh to fast forward when i harvest something uh, i inherently believe that that thing has given its life to me and that it has a decision and that's how i was raised uh, the, I'm, I'm kind of self-conscious talking about this because some people might think i'm a nut bar uh, mm-hmm. but uh I think across the board in indigenous cultures, that's a very common theme. And, and to get back to the conversation of what it means to pull the trigger after, or in, in that relationship, when you pull the trigger and decide to kill an animal, uh, it goes back to this place where uh, the animal actually decided that long before you. Okay. That's like a fact in, in our world. And the let me think of where to bring this next. There are different rituals for different species in in many different cultures, and how you connect to that animal to like begin that process. So, like I said, um, sometimes it starts months in advance. Uh, I'm going to talk about mountain goat because that's what I write about in my research with mm-hmm. my PhD. And um, I think I'm more comfortable with that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I should tell our, the, your listeners, the reason I'm uncomfortable about this is because it's a tricky topic. We're talking about spirituality and rituals that were illegal um, for however many years uh, they were assimilated. Our, our people were assimilated into a different religion and were jailed if they did these ceremonies. And so they went underground and they stayed underground and they're still mm-hmm. there, but they're underground and people just don't know they exist, mm-hmm. but they do exist and they're sacred and we're worried about how we treat these rituals and ceremonies and do these things to give them life, to ensure they're protected, ensure, ensure they're not appropriated. So that's why I'm like kind of in a jumbled state trying to figure out how I should talk about this. Can I ask you a couple things just about the, the, so uh, first of all, I, I appreciate you you finding a way to share share this because it's it's it, like you say it's hard it's hard to share and it's it's and it's uh, and I think we've talked about just the complexity of trying to share cultural knowledge uh, and, and feeling empowered to do it and doing it the right way. I know it's difficult, so I I appreciate you trying to find a way to to, to share that knowledge and stories. And I do think when we once that knowledge is eventually out there and shared in the right way, it's 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 gonna make oh it's gonna create a much better understanding of of culture and community and under better understand history and connection to, to land and all good things that that we i think we've talked about in the past and how important that is for for you know non-indigenous culture and indigenous culture to work together to to find a way forward in in so many ways so i appreciate the good work you're doing i just want to acknowledge that um but the question i wanted to ask you like in that moment too, and, and this probably build into what you're talking about. Like, let's just make it simple. Like when, 
say you're 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 laying there looking at a goat at 300 yards and you've been glassing this goat and you're you're there next to your hunting partner and you're like okay that's the goat we're gonna take and you like lay down and you and you like squeeze the trigger and you see the goat crumple and fall down do you what is what's going through your heart that moment are you do you do you grab a hold of your hunting party give a big hug do you high five do you do you, do you stop and something else I mean, so so just give me that context as a as you know as who you are as a hunter okay so it's hard because i gotta give like the whole month lead up to that okay 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 so okay that's that, I, that's the question i want to ask you so like take take bring me there over the course of a month yeah so for goats in particular and like i said i'm i'm comfortable talking about some right writing about this in my thesis um they were especially prized for our people and they're extremely powerful animals spiritually they're used for an array of reasons and i don't think we have enough time to just talk about those things um right now but their their hide was powerful their coat their there's so much about them that has spiritual significance only people of uh high rank and, and and spiritual and chiefly powers could wear their coats um, could wear the coats made out of mountain goat hair uh, there's stories of how these mountain goats have taught us so many laws and these things they're just this like hardcore being <laughs> and so we put a lot of seriousness into the hunt and so for me personally i think i've messed mentioned this in another podcast and I can't remember which one but I didn't kill my first animal big game animal until I was like 20 I think but at that point I was trained by an elder um, who was the last in her village to be trained like underground in those rituals I was talking about and she taught me an array of things and a way a, an array of processes of of how you do these things for each animal and for the mountain goats uh one of the things we do as simpson people uh is you do different kinds of fasts and uh that might be several days um without food sometimes without water the longest fast i've done is four days no food or water that's another wow. Yeah, I'm not going to go down that story, no. but it, it, they look different for every different culture. Um, and, and so for us, it's a combination of uh, fasting, bathing and drinking medicines and doing cold water bathing. I don't know if any listeners know about Wim Hof. Uh, no, he's, no. He's this guy. He's this phenomenon that does like cold water bathing. And a lot of indigenous cultures have done that for years, specifically in regards to preparing for hunts. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just thought maybe that would be a cultural icon that listeners no, might I, be able to connect to. No, I've I've had elders tell me about about cold water bathing and the importance of okay, but yeah, but not in a yeah. So what you're doing at that time is you're like metaphorically preparing yourself, cleansing yourself as well as physically to be in a good place to like do this dance. This like marriage, this dance, this coming together of you and that animal. 
And over that process, a lot of cultures, uh, it'll be common to dream, to have vision, to do these things where that animal comes to you. And so I brought up my first kill when I was like 20 because, um, yeah, I, 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 in that process, everything played out before the hunt in my mind. Um, it was like watching a movie of what would happen in the future. And, and so, um, the way I would shoot that, it happened to be a bear, kill the bear, what angle, how it would fall, how it would die, what size the bear was. It told me those things before and it played it out like I watched a video. And at the time, I was 20 years old. I had never done this before. So I was, I, I, I was, um, I was speculating why I was doing this stuff. I wasn't a full believer okay. and, um, and, and it was working with this elder showing me these old ways, how these, uh, these processes exist in our communities that really helped me understand my role as a hunter. So, so just and to clarify, so, let me just jump in there. Cause that, so you, 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 uh, you had a vision of the, of the bear. It, you, you saw it before, like you had, you had a, is it a dream or a vision? How would you describe that experience of seeing the animal before it actually played out in real life? Yeah, dream and vision. Okay. And 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 so what you do is you call through those rituals, you call that animal into these into that dance, that sacred dance of taking its life um, long before you actually do it. And so on one level, you're preparing yourself so you're respectable. You're like cleansed. You bring your best self forward to be like, I'm a good hunter. I'm mm -hmm. a good person. Yep. And I'm I'm worth giving your life to. But also, um, the agency on the animal's end is saying, yes, I give you consent to do this. And that like time building up leads to taking that animal's life. And so there's... Every culture has its own interpretation. I've heard many things from many different cultures. Um, you wait till it looks at you and it stares at you. And then you have, the, it, it, you know when it says yes. And, okay. and sometimes you know based on vision, which one? You know it'll have this different colored spot here, or this there, what happens in the events. Those are very personal things and very specific to people's culture on what they say to look for, what elders will say to look for. But in the end, when I'm pulling that trigger, I'm thinking, um, you know, thanks for being a part of this process with me. Now's the time. Mm -hmm. And after I do that, uh, I think now I'll get to the stuff you alluded to earlier. When, when physically that animal is dying, ideally it will um, pass in a, a quick and... Uh, you know, reasonable fashion. Uh, there's, I think most cultures, I know in our culture, and any elders I've worked with from other cultures, there is this transition time from the physical being of that animal transitioning to another place. And, um, and so there are ways to help that aid that transition. So my mind instantly goes, okay, how do I do that first and foremost? And um, 
so at the, to answer one of your questions, I, I think, I, I, I can't really remember a time that I jumped up and down and was like, woo, let's hug. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's, it's like, okay, now there's another step involved of, of the to-do. The to-do list is that animal needs help transitioning into the, the next place where it's meant to go. And, and so um, there's different ways of doing that. For mountain goats, uh, we cut off pieces of its body and we place it in each direction on the mountain. And there's a certain prayer you say to each direction. Um, and, and, and that's because the, the mountains of the spirit, uh, sorry, the spirit of the mountains, the spirit of the winds and the spirit of the mountain goat are all connected. Mm-hmm. And so you're taking something from that, that, that relationship and bringing it to your own village. So you have to honor all those things. And, um, and, and so that's a part of our process with that specific animal. Uh, but every animal is different. Some animals I've heard people say, you take what they're eating and, and you put it in their mouth because it gives them some, uh, some power to transition that like extra kick of power they need to transition into the next place. You send them on a good way. Certain animals, you have to sing to them. Um, certain animals. Yeah. It, 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 it's different on culture. And I, I, I worry about talking about this sometime because I, I sometimes, cause I worry about appropriation again, but again, like you mentioned, some of this stuff is like valuable for hunters to hear because I think people aren't I know most people aren't taught these things Uh, I sort of stumbled into it um, partly because of my lineage and the other part because I was interested Um, but it also builds this moral and value around the act of hunting well I think it's incredibly like I don't think that many people talk about partly because well for one thing the reason why I think it's so important is like there's a lot of things that come into a hunt that shortly after you pull the trigger, there there's this sort of consequential moment leading up to that, that moment when you pull the trigger and then watching an animal die and then acknowledging that you've taken an animal's life. And a lot of things building up is, is it like maybe this is maybe that, you know, sheep hunt took 20 years of working hard, exploring, getting to know, coming close, failing, just about dying on the side of a mountain. And, all the things that built up to that moment where you finally or find yourself in a situation where you've, you, you're pulling the trigger and there's a legal ram because it might be relief. It might be like, like, mm. you know, just such great, like you're just this incredible sense of like hard work that has led to this moment that you're now going to like progress to the next stage, which is to then touch a, de- touch a dead sheep, which maybe you've never done before. And then, and then that's just one, I, one aspect. The other aspect is just, you know, I've I've seen this and I and I saw this this year with with Mickey when she harvested her first deer, just like like just standing there above a dead animal that's bigger than you, and, and just that moment realizing like this idea that you had you wanted to be a hunter and fill your freezer and you know this sort of altruistic concept of like taking responsibility for your own meat, but then you actually do it and you're standing over that dead animal and that moment sinks in of like holy jump and I just killed a beautiful animal and what does that mean as a human being and like 
So I totally like to 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 when I teach people or mentor people or in in the well program or just friends, I'm like, you've just had the most profound human expo- experience you'll probably ever have. Like, make sure you take some time to like allow yourself to, you know, to like to experience that moment to come come to grips with the emotional consequence of it to take some time to really like you know, be in the moment with that animal spirit and, and and like, you know, give your, you know, give thanks to that moment, the deer, the habitat. And I think in doing that, like it it takes what is a fairly, like could be a very traumatic experience and and providing you as a human being, some ways of you coming to grips with it, settling it, like coming, taking that moment and, and making it a beautiful experience. Um, and whatever way you get there, like I think it's important that you acknowledge it. Otherwise, I I think if you don't acknowledge it, you're just not, you know, you're you're not particularly. You're not, you, I think we're much more complex as human beings, and we need to acknowledge that in in that situation. And I think some people maybe jump through that a little bit. So that's why I think ceremony or ritual is super important in the in re, taking responsibility for taking the animal's life. I had a thought. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Tell me your thought, Dylan. So, uh, you, you, you had a, we, we, we chatted quite a bit on your moose hunt and, uh, and it was a tough moose hunt. As I understand, you covered a lot of ground and there was a sort of mooseless habitat and, uh, and it was disheartening for a lot of reasons. I'm sure not, well, not just the fact that you didn't fill your freezer, but, uh, I understand the habitat was pretty devastated there and it was hard to be a part of. Um, did you, did you see moose in your dreams? And when that was my first, did you, did, 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 did moose come to you in your dreams on that hunt? Oh, never in a million years would I expect you to ask that question. (laughs) Well, I guess follow up. I think I, so, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, oh, this is so weird to talk about in in this format, but I, um, yeah, I think I will. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant for the listeners who have never experienced like spending time in indigenous communities where these rituals are present. They're very personal, like protected things. And I was once told, um, when you're given these things, they're nothing to brag about. And, and, and when you have these experiences, the more you talk about them, the less power they have, and the more, um, the more you brag about your own experiences, the less power you have when it comes to those those things. And so I'm hesitant, but I mean, since it's a genuine question, I'm obliged to answer. And yeah, I did. I had very vivid dreams of the moose offering themselves to me. Um, and so what's interesting is that these things, these processes, these rituals that might put you into a different place, that is just that face value, the physical world, um, they're like little tools and little ways of helping you navigate your life, but they don't have all the answers (laughs) and so 
I was really confused and conflicted in this process because what my elders would have interpreted these things as is what this land is telling you is that if the right animal shows up, it's allowing you to take it. Uh-huh. But in this hunt, it never did show up. And honestly, I've never had that experience before where it didn't show up. And so I don't, I, I still haven't fully made sense of it, but I think there's still the, like, there's a few things that have gone through my head and that's in my own belief system. It tells me that I did prepare myself in a good enough way through the bathing rituals, through, through the rituals leading up to my hunts that that other world is saying, yes, you're an honorable hunter. And if it happens, um, these animals are accepting you as, as who you are as a hunter coming to feed your family, whoever, is in your community, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it, again, it doesn't mean that like the universe is giving me a free pass to just harvest. <laughs> it's like I don't have to try to harvest an animal. And so what ended up happening was I just hunted as hard as I could. It was a, an area that was uh, that I grew up in. I spent like six years tree planting that area. Um, I, I knew it. I, I thought I knew it well. Uh, it was hit by a forest fire and it was like logged more than I'd ever remembered uh, this area ever being logged. And it was just, it was just bare and, mm-hmm. and there, there wasn't much sign of anything. And I was just conflicted on, on what the balance is between this reality I'm seeing and these rituals, these, these practices that I hold. And I think that's like something that I don't need to have an answer for mm-hmm. other than the fact that I, I was able to maintain this status of being an honorable hunter and, and, and that uh, I was, I was doing the right practices that I was supposed to be doing leading up to the hunt. And um, I, I, but honestly, I still haven't made sense of it. I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I had two moments just when you're talking about this, and I and as two thoughts that came uh, into mind about reflecting on my hunting season. I on my on my first day of my whitetail hunt, I I'm sneaking across one of my favorite spots where I've shot a number of deer in the past few years, and it's it's been a I figured out a way to hunt it that's very productive, and I and I'm sneaking across, and I see the butt of a deer and it and it just sort of turns around and, and then it wa- and then it walks down the slope away from me and I can see its antlers just disappearing over the edge and it's I know this deer's not spooked and uh it's just walking so I kind of sneak down on him and he's moved into the timber and I sneak down on him and I can know kind of where he went oh he had there was snow on the ground so I could see exactly where he went but I kind of knew where he was going and I snuck down to his to to where I actually found him and down on the timber with my binoculars and he's staring at me. And, um, I, uh, I made the mistake of not just shooting him right then. Cause it's a white tailed deer. Like you don't really, once you see a deer, you shoot them. You, and I, and I, I think I've been 
mule deer hunting a little bit too much this year. I was like, oh, if I just take two steps over to that tree, I'll have a rest and I'll make a hunt. You know, I'll be 100% sure of the deer. But anyways, he, of course, disappeared as soon as I took that step over. And, I, and I'm like, oh, I should remember that I'm hunting whitetails and you should take the shot that it gives you. And, and uh, but as soon as that deer left, I was like, that was my chance for this whole trip. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna kill a, a white tail on this trip, and I just knew that. And I had it for seven more days, and I had some other really near near opportunities. But when it didn't work out, there's another one I walked it up on at thirty yards, and I it was had his head down in a bush, and I was gonna like I was like, oh my god, what a gift! And uh, and I went to shoot it, and when the uh, scope caps popped off my gun, it heard the scope caps come off the gun and just exploded, and. Uh, and I and I I wasn't even shocked that that didn't work out, even though it was a complete gift. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I know, I know, I'm not going to kill a deer on this trip. And this is like to have this overwhelming feeling was a bit weird, considering, like I, I mean, I've I've shot a deer in this area every year since I was 12 years old, and and you know, and a couple every year for a number of years before it was before they well, it was still a two deer season. So I feel very confident in my ability to kill a deer. Now things have changed. The, the ecosystem has changed dramatically there and there's fewer deer and I, it's getting harder and harder. I just know, knew that as well. But the, like the sense was it just, this, this was going to be the first year I didn't hunt a whitetail, which was, was, was pretty intense for me to carry that with me. But now on the flip side of that, I went blacktail hunting and I, and I've been exploring blacktail hunting around locally here uh, this year and a bit of last year as well. And I, I finally sort of found this spot that I thought was huntable and, and black taily, I guess you'd say. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm going to kill a deer today. And just like over the complete confidence that I was going to kill a deer. And to the point that when I didn't kill a deer that day, when I, I saw some does, I was like, okay, I don't know what happened. How come I didn't kill it? I must've, I must've just not seen the buck. I, I almost feel like I screwed up. And then the next day I went, hunting again and got into a different spot and that feeling came back. I was like, oh, there it is again. There's that feeling. Okay. Okay. If I just keep doing what I'm doing, this deer is going to present itself and it's going to, and it's going to, and it's going to give itself to me. And it's like, it, this deer couldn't have given itself to me anymore. Like it literally just like walked out in front of me on those beautiful Ridge I, in this particular part of the world. And just was like, hi here, like I'm ready. And I'm like, okay, but thank you so much. And, and that was like I knew that before, way before I knew it when I was white tail hunting that that this was this was going to happen, and I I don't have an explanation for it, just that I feel those moments that are they're intense too. Like I don't know as I go through. When you killed that deer, did when you approached it after was the feeling different this time, given the hunch you had going into the hunt? Um, I was really like, I, you know, going back to that, like, you know, there's a hard hunt and I've been working at this a bit. And I think there was maybe even a, like a more of a gratefulness that I felt and excitement in the sense that I was just like, so happy in that moment because I kind of was crushed on my whitetail hunt it's a, to some degree and I, the area that i ended up f- hunting for this black tail like i was crushed because of the the ecosystems that i've hunted in the whitetail country are, are being nucleated so quickly by the logging 
that it's just like heartbreaking. It's not the fact they didn't kill a deer. It's the fact that there's like nowhere for the deer to live anymore that breaks my heart. So what really like kind of got me in this place I was in, like this particular piece of forest, um, I don't think it's going to get nuked anytime soon, which is a really nice feeling. (laughs) And I've got this like hunt that I think is going to be protected as, as a old growth management area. And hopefully they'll, it'll be off the, off the books for a while. And, and, um, yeah, that just that in itself, like just like I don't know that that all part of that was uh, was all mixed up in that moment of 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 that animal giving itself to me and and having that moment with it, it was also this like incredibly beautiful place. I'll, I'll send you a picture of where I killed this deer. I won't share it publicly, but um, but the actual place that this deer was is pretty special. So yeah, no, so yeah, it was maybe more 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 in i mean they're all intense they're all that's always an intense moment after you pull the trigger or like when you see an animal die and i feel just so incredibly grateful every time that but this might have been a little bit more for sure Mm. not totally sure why but definitely it was on the it registered a lot more intense for some reason why do you you have any thoughts on that It's just interesting when there's this relationship between human and animal. And I I hope that your listeners, I mean, I don't mind if people think that I'm a kook or that some of these, uh, the things I've been bumbling my way through talking about um, are crazy. But what I hope, I hope they come, what any listener would come out with is this, the ability or the interest in questioning, is there something more between this relationship between myself and this animal than just like killing and eating or just killing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, something I always talk about is what you've experienced just there, what I've experienced and been sort of taught to experience or taught how to, you know, go through those experiences and do the rituals to harness those experiences. That has been existence for a lot longer than any of the cultures we're a part of. Mm-hmm. Like that stuff has been in place as long, like every culture had that prior to the industrialized world. Mm-hmm. prior to the colonization of 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 all these every indigenous culture in the world and the industrialization globalization of the world and so i hope that listeners can again find curiosity in that but also understand that humans weren't just doing this for fun because they were crazy like humans did this because it had a purpose we do things because they have a purpose and every culture had its own special process around this because it did something to benefit us Mm -hmm. and so i i I, humans love making meanings out of things (laughs) and maybe some humans are more uh, exaggerate those meanings and 
and romanticize those meanings more than others. But um, there are deep, deep lessons to learn around this topic, I think. And um, that's just something that comes to mind um, in, in this conversation. Well, and I think that, like, there's probably more common, like, there's a lot of common ground here with what you're, what you're when you say people might think I'm a kook. I like, well, I don't think so. Because I think that the go-to for most people who are experiencing this are, are, are acknowledging that this animal has given its life. I think there's already a connection to that. I don't, I, I think that that's, that's something I hear frequently that people understand that this is a gift from mother nature or this is the, it's something that is being provided to us to be, uh, to, to sustain ourselves, to sustain our family, to be part of this ecosystem, mm -hmm. whether we exit it or not, but we're still part of this larger circle of life that's happening when we go out and harvest our own animal. And I think people feel that sort of connection. I think they feel a sense of thanks. I hear that a lot. And I, and, and then I think like, as you become more in tune with it, maybe there's different types of things you may experience and, like if you don't start asking these questions, like, like, like I know for there is a connection between me and the animals I hunt because like, there's just too many, I would, I would, I have too many questions that would go unanswered if I just didn't say, Hey, as a, as a human being, I am part of this, the, the animal world. And someone on some level, I'm communicating with these animals because of how it, how things continually work out or how, I see this this world, and I don't have a language to describe that, except I experience it as you know, as a hunter. And I, I think that, well, I think all hunters, you know, start to find their way there. And it's like, like I, I really like what you say. You know, recognize this is like all, all cultures have, go, you know, have, have all been hunter gatherers at one time and we all carry that with us somewhere in our dna and and that's what makes you know for so many of us like i i just love the the thing that i most love when i, I you know a new hunter sort of discovers hunting and then it just takes over their lives and they're like why is it that i get so darn excited about planning a hunt that's 11 and a half months away like what the heck like how did this happen? How did I not know about this? And it just completely filled up all aspects of my life. And well, it's because you are probably a human being and that's what human beings, you know, are programmed to do, or at least some of us is to, is to hunt. Yeah. And uh, so getting in touch with that, it's kind of cool. Like, but yeah, well, okay. So we're covering some ground here. We're, we're diving deep into the, into the, um, now the reason why I was asking about the moose, I was like, well, and I guess you kind of answered it, but I was like, well, if, you know, if, if you're, if the moose didn't show up, would that mean that you're not going to have a successful hunt? That was the second half of my question. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is, I think why this stuff is hard to present to mainstream audiences is because it's not a mathematical equation. <laughs> not like dream plus me going hunting equals full freezer <laughs> or like it, it just doesn't work that way but these ceremonies and rituals teach resilience they teach humility they teach respect they teach all these things whether you're successful or not 
about how to be a very good human being in an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when you see, and, sorry, go on. And so in this case, I mean, I, 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 I would just reiterate what I said before. I haven't totally made sense of what happened. Um, there was so many things happening where I feel like I, I've been the healthiest I've been ever as a hunter. I, I, I made this goal over the fall that I would, I wanted to hit a hundred kilometers of like self propelled movement while hunting. Okay. And wow. I haven't done that yet. I hit 80. Pretty good. Um, but yeah, I felt like I was in the right place. These things came together. I did my own, uh, my own, I did cultural practices. Um, and then you hit this thing of like mass resource extraction and climate change forest fires. And how do these things collide together? I, I mean, I don't know, but I've, I'm experiencing it and I'm feeling it. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote in an Instagram post about this where I said, I don't make sense of this, but all I know is that the, the process that I've gone through has made me more resilient. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, maybe um, this is me adding on thoughts. Maybe these rituals and these things aren't entirely about that mathematical equation, you know, correct ritual and vision and gun equals meat in the freezer what it means is that as humans we're resilient we're connected we're in tune with things so when disaster happens when things like forest fires when things like drought when we as people as communities are facing hardship we're grounded in something that's funny that sort of brings us back to our start of the conversation when pandemics hit how do you fare yeah, <laughs> totally. Being grounded in your way of life as a hunter and a fisher can help cope and survive. Yeah, I um, I often think of, uh, this is a, kind of a side tangent, but I think of what I'm going to hand down to my children when I have them. I hope I have children. Uh, I, I haven't yet, um, but I used to think, oh, I've got to learn so everything I can about my territory because I have the access to these elders who were born and raised in a fluent culture. They're the last generation of my people to be like from birth raised as, you know, I don't like to romanticize like this untouched indigenous culture because I don't feel like cultures are fully dying or do fully die. Cultures just change. But there's this uniqueness to my elders that I have access to right now. And so I think, oh, I should like make sure I get as much out of them as I can so I can pass that on to my children. But then it's, I think, with the, the change in our ecosystems we see today, a lot of it might not be relevant. I, I mean, maybe for my children it will be, but like for their children, for my grandchildren, will it be relevant? You know, can if if our oceans keep uh, becoming more toxic or uh, acidifying, clams can't even grow. 
So what are these teachings about clams for? And what I've found grounding in is the idea that no matter what, if people are grounded in a lifestyle, they can survive a hell of a lot. Like they can, they can be resilient and beautiful. Like the epitome of being a human being is very, being is very beautiful. And that's when you can like be resilient and adaptive to ecosystems and natural environments in a way that in time you learn to thrive. And so if I can teach my children to thrive in whatever ecosystem, I have this confidence that in the future they could thrive in a different ecosystem. Like that thought, I remember taking that away. I think we maybe we had a conversation uh, after you had came off that moose trip and and talking about resiliency. And uh, I I like that you know building up your yeah building up your resiliency to survive and adapt and and that really is the our way forward as you know as societies and as people and communities. So. Okay, so so we've already chatted for like over an hour. Of course, I feel like we've only got through kind of the first idea that I was kind of excited about was just getting your perspective on uh, on ceremony. And, and I just completely like opened up my eyes to the whole. It's a much more complicated conversation than I not even got. It's just like there's lots to this. Of course, there's lots to this. And I um, I thought we just like, you know, make fun of the guys high five on Instagram. And it's like that time of year right now where if you flip through your feed, there's lots of people like you know, posting their pictures of their successful deer trips and lots of like, you know, you know, high five, virtual high fives on the Instagram and, and, uh, accolades and such. But, you know, I, and I don't even want to diminish like that. Like, I don't even like, it's like, Oh, I don't even want to ask you what you think of all that. Cause I don't even, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, what, what do you think? Like, you know, do you have thoughts about like, if you, if you could tell someone, you know, give them some tools to like be in that moment after, after a death of an animal and like give them some touch points to like, to think about after that point, do you feel comfortable sort of talking about what that could look like for someone who's just a new hunter say, and that's like going to go through this for the first time where they've killed an animal and, and reflecting on your own experience watching an animal die. Like what, what, what would be some things you'd, you'd think of to pass on? I got an image that comes to mind and hopefully it resonates. Cool. I'm glad you asked that question. Phew. <laughs> um, I mean, not because I think I have the right answer. I just think it's a great question. Maybe my answer will resonate with some. So I think for indigenous cultures who, or any culture that exists sort of out of this modern Western world, this idea of like, I've heard academics or in academic conversations and philosophical conversations talk about it as a non-dualist way of viewing spirit or religion in that everything is sort of on one plane as opposed to split up in a different, uh, a dualist spirituality or religion would be like Christianity or um, Islam, something where there's like a very clear, god heaven and a very clear hell um two different separate yeah. realms yeah separated from yeah and, and for indigenous cultures it's very rarely that's the case it's non-dualist everything's sort of on the same place but they're in different i don't know realms so to speak 
Okay, so gods they're don't, not, they're not like we're not on earth and the gods are somewhere else. Like, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, another word that's used is there's this animism, like animals have life and they act and live just as human beings act as live, which is very true for our people. Uh, if you um, listen to the stories or read some of the stories, animals take the forms of humans and they give us law. They, they, they tell us how to govern ourselves. Um, imagine like an animal saying, this is what your governance structure is going to look like. It's going to be a parliament. It's going to be this. And this is how Senate and lawyers look. And imagine animals doing that. Well, that's yeah. how it works for us. Okay. So if animals in, are inherently on the same level as you, you should treat them in that way. And so imagine if you were like, in, in Spencer's world, whether you see it as insane or if you've bought into what I'm talking about, yeah, just imagine Spencer's world, La Lord's world, whichever name you want to use. Um, let's say I'm the animal. I'm the one being killed. I'm in this like ceremony um, leading up to my death. And there's these processes and I'm like, oh yeah, this is a good hunter. I, I appreciate what they're doing. Um, there are plenty of stories. I'm, I'm picturing myself as like the mountain goat or something saying, I've, I've been told why I should give to the humans and what they're going to do to give back to my people, the mountain goat people. And I, I'm down with this. It sounds good. I'm, I'm okay with this trade. Also in our world, there's like, death isn't the, like, it's sad, there's mourning, there's grief, but it's not a horrible thing. Because for us, we believe in reincarnation too. And so it's just like this different, it's like, oh yeah, right now it's breakfast, next thing's lunch. So <laughs> that's like, something to keep right in mind. Right now I'm human, next thing I'm an eagle. It's all good. I'm looking forward to what's next. <laughs> I don't, it's not that simple, but uh, I mean, for the sake of this conversation, yeah. yeah. Sure, let's roll with that. Um, I, that was my fault for the bad analogy, but yeah. let's keep going with it. Um, you know, this is just, this journey right now is just breakfast journey. Okay, <laughs> we're breakfast. Journey okay. And I'm going to transition <laughs> to the next place. Um, uh, you want to do it in a good way and, 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 and you want to feel okay with that. And so I've, I've made the agreement. You know, I'm willing to give myself up for you. Um, and then it happens. And then you're like, okay, it's a process to transition into that other place, to that next step of the journey. And this person has responsibility to help with that process. And instead of doing that, it's like you're just standing around taking pictures and high fives. And uh, just uh, working in ways that only serve themselves. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, in the case of the mountain goat, the winds, the mountain that created who you were in, in, in the mountain that deserves the recognition to uphold your the herd that has helped you grown up and that you have helped up all these other things these pieces that deserve recognition before the self 
And so that's where the relationship starts to get skewed. It's like in this process, who am I serving first? And again, I mean, people don't have to believe me. They don't have to listen. This is just what's going through in Spencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and so that's one piece of it. The next piece of it is I, we genuinely believe that we can aid that journey going from breakfast realm to lunch realm yeah. or from this life to the next life. Yes. You yes. can aid that in making it in a good way. And then that being, depending on the, the, the being, but many different species, um, will will give you better luck as a hunter they'll they'll tell the rest of their family this is a good person we should honor them they honor us so we'll keep letting them have successful harvests um and there's like this ongoing relationship that continues i like that and and, and yeah i, I it, it's it's funny having this conversation i because as I tell these stories, I'm, my brain is just going about how people might try to debunk these stories. And so, it's, again, it's hard for me to talk about this. No, I think it's, I mean, you know, you're, you're just talking to me, I'm like, I'm eating this up because it's, it, it's, I'm finding lots in myself, in my own view of, of, of my experience with hunting and of, of connecting with wildlife in, as a hunter and, and what, and connecting with habitat too, and just trying to do it in a, yeah, like I, I try to do it in, in, in a good way and in, in the right way that, and, and coming, having a language for it, I think is what it really, what it really amounts to is like, I feel these things and I see these things and I, I see these things in other people. I, I, you know, I, like I see good hunters and, and they're just better than the other hunters. Now I, it's not because they're, more fit or they're necessarily more knowledgeable, but they, however they approach it, uh, they're more open to the connection maybe with, with wildlife. Uh, maybe it's something to do with that. The wildlife feel more comfortable giving themselves to them, but whatever it is, like they're just a really good hunter. And I think that there's some basis in that. What we're talking about is that these things make sense to me. And I think to a lot of us who spend a lot of time hunting and, and creating these connections, I, you know, this is, this is stuff that is stuff we, we can, we can talk about. We certainly feel it, experience it. I think one way of, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, huge parts of the non-indigenous hunting community and, and indigenous hunting community as well, like feel this incredible responsibility to be stewards of, of the land. Uh, and, and and sorry, I said uh, speaking from the indig non-indigenous hunting perspective here, and of course, um, what I'm where I'm going with is this: the tremendous efforts that are put forward through conservation organizations, and you know, most hunters who find hunting find their way to being, uh, you know, to looking for ways to be to to, to protect habitat, to do good things for wildlife. Um, I, I, and I think that's part of this conversation is that we, you know, we all feel responsible in some way and we want to do, do be good and do it right. And, and, uh, I think that's, that's maybe part of this too, is that, that drive to do that. I think there's for certainly that what you see on, 
you know, on some of the images that people share, like it's the high fives and the, and the fist pumps and stuff, which, but I do think that there's a lot of people out there who is this, that's not what it's for them. I actually, I texted, uh, five friends that from my oldest friend to my young, my oldest hunting partner to my youngest hunting partner. So Larry's 82 and, uh, uh, Wyatt is 10. And, uh, they both Larry and Wyatt were two of the successful hunters at Whitetail Camp this year, and I got their take on on you know what is it like to what's their what was their feeling and their ceremony after a hunt, and and both of them had really thoughtful answers in in, in text about about their experience, and and it certainly was um, you know in the realm of just connection and and thankfulness and and uh, yeah, it was cool for Wyatt just how just where he's at with kind of a little kid that was is been totally influenced by youtube and the youtube hunters out there and then to actually be out there with his dad killing his first animal and how just like that whole perspective of hunting being kind of a sport was what you get from from instagram or youtube instantly changed in the moment that he shot his first deer and uh was there with his dad to actually experience it firsthand and what how that changed for him so that's a cool story so This has been fun, man. This is like profound stuff for me. I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this stuff. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I um, I think. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. We've said it in the previous podcast that these relationships make people better people. Yeah, and and so. Uh, exploring these harvesting relationships is nothing but good for our society, nothing but good for our humanity. For sure. You've kind of taken it. Well, no, it's funny because in my mind, I I was having this this idea about like that moment of celebration, right? And, and, you know, what's that like? And, And we could, criticize you know how people are celebrating that online or whatever then talk about some of the mm. deeper tenets of it but it's, I, I really like how you've sort of stretched out this conversation to be much wider it's it's not just that moment that you need to sort of show yeah. some respect or have an experience like, it's actually the whole experience and like yeah it kind of just way blew the doors off this conversation a bit so it's 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 kind of cool man I, I i liked it and it kind of expands things for me i I think I'm going to ask the same question and I, I kind of like this because, you know, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to have the same conversation with Larry and maybe a couple of my, a couple of my buddies who are, you know, elder an elder in the, as a, you know, in the resident hunting community and, and maybe see if I get Wyatt on here too, the, <laughs> the young kid um, to have similar conversation and, and, and it'd be kind of interesting to have sort of be able to have both out there and see what, see what comes of it, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that it's really good to hear because you interact with a lot of hunt, a lot more hunters than I do, that this is on people's minds, um, and that people talk about this and have questions about this, and uh, um, I there is actually some book recommendations that I have that might be interesting for some of the listeners cool that's uh, but interesting for me too the first one off the top of my head is called sawak 
T-S-A-W-A-L-K by Umik, Richard Atlio, Hereditary Chief. Um, and uh, there's a lot of discussion around ritual and what goes into a hunt. And it's tied to the whale hunt. Cool. And um, a, a lot of beautiful words about, um, and a lot of content about what exactly what we're talking about. Another book is called Spirits of Our Whaling Ancestors. And then there's this other book that I always recommend. Ecologies of the Heart. And that's like a scientist's take on the importance of spirituality in, in, in our relationships with ecosystems. Something that I hope to see in the future, the way this conversation sort of, like you say, it sort of stretched it wide open, um, was that this stuff is, it's not individualistic. It, it was never meant to be individualistic. It was supposed to be like a communal thing. And because of our the way our society is structured, it's turned it into that. It's turned it into the high fives. It's turned it into the Instagram. Um, something that is still followed very strictly, um, at least in my knowing, is when someone kills their first animal. They rarely even get to taste it. Mm -hmm. It goes to the, the community mm -hmm. because it's the community who hunted it. Because they're the ones who like, put spirit into this this new hunter they're the ones who trained them there's the they're the ones who gave them that everything they have mm -hmm. and and that's something that's just missing in the mainstream hunting world um at least at the forefront at face value um it's just like how how you know our mothers and our grandmothers are involved in the hunt just as much as you know our I totally know, and, and this is so. Every time we talk, we we kind of end up at this place where it's like, God, we have so much to share because we both have like, you know, whether you're coming from, you know, an indigenous perspective about what resident hunters are like and what they think about and what motivates them, and si similarly, understanding the indigenous hunt from a resident hunter's perspective, like, 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 there's so much more to talk about. This is what's cool about being your friend and 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 you being open to joining me on this podcast, like, um. I was just thinking like one of the things I taught uh, that I see over and over again, it's like that we do this, the first buck banquet uh, for eat well, first buck banquet, which is like, if you've had a successful hunt, you, um, uh, you uh, get to come over to my house for dinner and you share some of your harvest with the, all these other first buck or first successful hunters. It's not just a buck, it could be a moose or do whatever. Right. Um, and uh, it's such a, it's a really cool time because it's just like really supportive, comfortable environment. People come and share this new passion and, their, and to share their harvest story. And it's, you know, obviously a very hunter friendly environment. Um, it's super cool. But the theme that is so common, like people just absolutely want to share that harvest. And it's something that all of us hunters feel like you, you come home from a hunt and you're butchering, you know, a deer in your front, you know, in your front yard, in my case, sometimes. <laughs> and like, I just look at these beautiful, like, uh, loin steaks and I like walk to the neighbor's house. But here's a couple of loin steaks that I just cut off this deer I had. Like, I don't know you guys, but you know, my neighbors, I know you, but you know, I just feel this overwhelming need to share it. And like, you don't go to Costco and be like, oh, it's a great deal on beef tenderloin and come home, cut it up, 
you know, and they'd be like, oh, I got to walk these next door to the neighbor. And be like, yeah. hey, you want some beef line steaks? They were cheap, you know, like. But I think it's all there. Like, I think I think we're we're, we're all there. I think there's so much common ground. And I just like, again, it comes to the kind of just the language of it a little bit and getting more comfortable with it. But this has been awesome. So, OK, Spencer, I'm really excited because I. um. Uh, I I want to come see you in this. I, I'm kind of banking on like things getting better by like May or June. Maybe there'll be a uh, um, co- uh, vaccine that's that that hopefully we we all have access to and we can travel again. If I came to visit you in May or June, what would we get up to? Give me something to look forward to. The next few months the are going to be tough. Thing, <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is the seal hunt. Oh, yes. <laughs> because May is a great time for seal hunting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, fishing and seal hunting in in May. I, also in May, that's when we're like, uh, you got to make sure you come when I'm not down in the territory at our seaweed camp because May is a big time for okay. our seaweed harvest, halibut harvest. Um, yeah, that all happens the same time. Regardless, though, let's look forward to a seal hunt together. I'm so excited about that. I'm, I, I find it fascinating. I, I, I still have a, a package of seal in my freezer that you gave me when we met in the spring, and I, and I'm so excited to try it. And I, and I keep thinking of different ideas. But maybe we'll talk about that offline. How do I best, how do I best cook it? But I've kind of like been saving it. Like I'm like excited about it. But I think I'm just gonna have to eat it now because now I got a seal hunt planned. I can I can eat it because yeah. I can be fairly totally. sure that we're gonna, you know, hopefully have success. So, and uh, this is well, I just want to go, so I just want to come hang out. So I'm excited about that. Um, so I I think we we got to wrap this up because we're we're over an hour. And uh, but uh, how do people find you if they want to if they want to connect with you? Or oh, if you, just if, come if you to Prince Rupert, <laughs> come to Prince Rupert in Hartley Bay and just say, hey, where's Spencer? Yeah, we're Spencer. Cool. <laughs> I'm on Instagram. Um, you know, in the academic world, I'm doing some publishing and stuff. And, uh, but yeah, for the most part, Instagram. Cool. I'll I'll put a link on the podcast notes that for your Instagram. If someone wants to reach out to you, I'm sure there's lots of questions. And um, it's been so so. Thank you so much. Thanks for being so generous with your time and uh, and your knowledge. And and uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. So this has been fun. Okay. Well. Be safe, Spencer. Hope we get through these dark nights. Um, always here for a phone call. Have you a cup of tea with you. So, Thanks. Hang out. Likewise. Awesome. Thanks so much.